Pakistan and the Liberation Army. Let's turn to Romans 8. Good morning, Mrs. Matthews. Good to see you. God has revealed his elevating grace to us in many ways, lifting us up into divine life and fellowship. Sometimes he does that through people. And we've been very pleased this week to have our Mississippi entourage with us from the DVD group in Madison. And we also have on the blue side our Potter Shed folks, our faithful Potter Shed folks from Ohio. We're welcoming anonymous people from Florida and many other places I see throughout. And we're very grateful. This time of communion is a special time in which we can experience a fellowship that's unparalleled in any other thing we do in life as we participate in the Eucharist together. Something that our Lord Jesus Christ longs to do in the kingdom with his disciples. And he will be very much present with us today as we partake. And we offer a sacrifice of praise as Dan's song showed us. We offer the sacrifice of our bodies. We present our bodies. We give our hearts to the Lord that he may teach us. We entrust our spirit to him, and as this morning I prayed, I entrusted the spirit of to tell us thy phalanx to him, that we would be taught. Our prayer is also, as with Pastor Brown's prayer, that God will cast his net still wider and use our fellowship today and the word today to be used in God's project to draw all to his son. For if I'm lifted up, Jesus said, and he was, I will draw all to myself. He drew all judgment to himself. He drew all that was against us to himself and bore it with him to the cross. In his resurrection, he reveals the justification of all of us. And we enjoy that fellowship today. My prayer is that we will experience the kingdom of God that we will experience in some meaningful measure together the elevating grace that lifts us up into divine life. For our life now is Christ, and when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. Our service today will go from the message and blend into a smooth segue, thanks to our ushers. They'll taking you to the elements. All are welcome to partake in the communion service with us today. And there will be a, a second increment in which I'll be teaching a little bit in prelude to our taking of the elements. Be speaking just for a moment on the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans the epistle, we finished its exposition some time ago. We've been on a distillation phase of it. And we always like to go into a distillation concentration phase of Romans today, we will be considering Romans eight nineteen through nine twenty six. I've been doing the reading here with expanded comments. It was the Lord's providence. The last time we were here on Wednesday, I kind of fell off toward the end of Romans eight. I intended to read the whole chapter, but I found that that was providential 
because there is a theme that runs without interruption from Romans 8, 19, all the way into Romans 9, deep into Romans 9, 9, 26. That theme is the sons of God. Romans is all about the son of God. It's the gospel of God, the very good news of God's son. And today we'll be entitling this section of Romans, the son of God and the sons of God. You'll find that this whole section is bracketed by a reference to the sons of God. And that's you. Throughout our expanded paraphrase, we not only have shown where the opponent is speaking in the Socratic dialogue with Paul in the first four chapters, that's available in print and will be and is on the website already. And we'll show a little bit more of that today because the opponent comes in and challenges Paul with some objections in Romans 9, 19 to 33. So we'll be considering some of those things. Dotted throughout this expanded paraphrase is what I call a constellation of insights. Not just an insight here or there, but a constellation of insights that the Holy Spirit has graced us with. Through insights, the Holy Spirit lifts us with elevating grace into higher and higher horizons. Not for exalt, to exalt ourselves, but in fact, he only exalts those who are lowly and who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, which is what we do when we receive teaching as something that we don't assume we know already. If we assume that we know already, then we deviate from the first gift God gave us, and he gave it to us at our birth, and that is the light that lights every person, comes into the world. Every person that comes into the world has a light in them. It's called the human spirit, and it's our opportunity as creatures to participate in uncreated light. And so God puts within us the pure desire to know, and we follow that pure desire And if it remains the pure desire to know God rather than just something about him, like universal redemption, just something about him, like eschatology, something about him, like angelology, etc., rather than him himself, we will eventually deviate from that pure desire to know and not come to truly know him. So that's a challenge to us. And it will be one that I'll be making over and over again. Most of you are here because you have that pure desire to know. And the ultimate realization of that desire is when you know the ultimate being called God. Who exists in three persons. And whose action toward us is redemptive and purely salvific in every single way. And so today as I read Romans the epistle from 819 to 23. It's an expanded paraphrase. But it will receive, you'll receive also seven insights and be looking for them. Besides the seven that I'm going to give you, be aware that the Holy Spirit is in this place to give many more. Not only does he give us insights that lift us into higher horizons to see a broader and wider perspective of God's love, but he also does something in us in our intentions it is God in us both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. And his own good pleasure is that we experience in some real measure the saving activity of God 
even now. For he is the Savior of all mankind, especially those who believe. If you believe, and as the Holy Spirit evokes faith in you, you are of that especially those who believe category and have the privilege even now of experiencing the life of the coming age in the present moment. So this is the Son of God and the sons of God. We begin not with that paraphrase, but with an insight, a repetition of where we were a little bit on Wednesday with some expansion. Insight one, God does two things that are infinitely beyond the horizon of creaturely ability. First, he calls non-existent things into existence. And second, he raises the dead to life, Romans 4.17. These two activities are, in fact, two aspects of God's new creation. First, he called, this is all holding together as one insight. First, he called non-existent things into existence. These things, all of creation, were void and without form in themselves. Without the divine creator, they are void and without form. As Romans 8.20 says, the creation was made subject to vanity or futility, not by its will, but by the will of its creator. The creator intended the creation to be utterly dependent upon him. The creator himself is the one who fills up the space of creation's formlessness without Christ without God it is formless and void and so the creator himself is the one who fills up the space of creation's futility by entering the creation in Jesus Christ through incarnation by entering the creation in Jesus Christ and him crucified and then raised from the dead And this is creation in the beginning, void and without form in itself, being filled up with all the fullness of God by an act that I'm going to be calling, and this is the next large increment of our study, instauration, an act called instauration. The root word of that is stau, S-T-A-U, or we get the Greek word stauros, which is the cross. And so by the cross, God still continues his creative act. And the instauration is the act of God's love, unparalleled, unconditional, and universal love, which identifies the creation with the crucified and risen Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus by which humanity in all of its times is justified by God's grace, Romans 3.24, is the second aspect of God's act of creation by which all of creation becomes ever new and always pristine, free from the reign of sin and death that ruled in its former futility. All this is one insight. Like the creation in its totality, Humanity in all of its times is incapable of bringing about its own redemption by any action whatsoever, be it works or believing. That's important. 
Only God can bring non-existent things into existence and bring the dead to life. Therefore, only God, by his own action, can save all humanity, lost humanity. When this new creation is completed, then God will be all in all, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. That means that all of humanity will have grasped the dimensions of the love of Christ, which are not graspable creaturely-wise. All of humanity will have grasped the dimensions of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And thus all of humanity, as well as all of creation, will be all filled up with the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19 God will possess, therefore, all of creation as it was intended to be in Christ Jesus. And all of creation in Christ Jesus will possess God as he is in himself by a participation in the divine life through Jesus Christ. Therefore, all of creation, this is the upshot of the gospel, incidentally, becomes the cathedral of the indwelling of the God who is love and who has, even now, gifted us with his own love. It's in this state of mind that you partake in the communion today. So in the beginning, we have Genesis 1, 1 to 2 is not something that happens in the beginning, but something that happens in the beginning and the end. It's directly related to Romans 18, 8, 19 to 23, where we're going. Genesis 1, 1 to 2 says, in the beginning, the Greek word is arche, which means Christ. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, out, was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So included in God's calling of non-existent things into existence is his calling into existence of a non-created evil as a supreme good through the love of the law of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This process, which we're going to fan out for years, is called instauration. The beginning and the end, and the beginning is the end. The reason that I say the beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning, is because Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end, in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, So God in the beginning and the end, which is Christ, makes the heavens and the earth meaning Christ will constitute all things and all things will be comprised of Christ. These are the implications of the gospel of God about his son, Paul's gospel, Romans the epistle. This is the spiritual gift in Romans 1.11 that Paul the apostle imparts to us as he did to the Roman saints in AD 52. The proclamation of the gospel of God about his son in a far greater fullness than we and traditional Christianity has typically known. That's Romans. So we continue in a section I call All Paul. In Romans 1 to 4, Romans 1, 1 to 17, we have the introduction. Romans 1, 18 to 425, we have a dialectic of contradictories between Paul and an opponent. This distinguishes a gospel 
not a gospel of works versus a gospel of faith, but a gospel of the faithfulness of Christ justifying all humanity rather than justification by works or faith. And then in Romans 5.1, we have all Paul. Romans 5.1 to 8.39 is all Paul, the pure, unchained gospel. And we're getting toward the end of that section now in 8.19, which says, for, and this again is my expanded paraphrase. When you get this in print, you'll see in the very beginning, I have an introduction. In there, there are some what we might call disclaimers. This does not claim to be a translation, but a an expanded paraphrase from a pastor's heart who chooses to help the joy of his congregation. We are helpers of your joy. And the explanation goes every time we meet for this. So this is the distillation phase of Romans. This has the power of elevating you into the life of God himself in the triune God. For my words are spirit and they are life, Jesus said. Romans eight nineteen for the creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God. That's the glorious revelation of eschatological glorified Israel, according to Hosea 2.1 in the Septuagint. Verse 20, for the creation, and this is what I was leading up to with our insight, the creation was subjected to futility, made void and without form, tohu wabohu in itself, in Genesis 1.2, only to be given purpose and shape by its creators in dwelling or residence. The verse continues in 20b, not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation. Here's an insight. The expectation here is not ours, but God's. God is pictured here by a metaphor. When someone makes something, crafts something, paints something, builds something, makes something, They always do so with an expectation that whatever they make or do will fulfill some purpose, whether by art, the appreciation of people, perhaps the elevation into another element of living, whether it's a cabinet, they hope that it will fulfill its purpose, its practical purpose. And God also, in making the creation, has a hope or an expectation that it will fulfill and realize his purpose. And so this is actually what we might call God's hope. And this will open us up for insight number two. So again, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but through the one God who subjected it with hope or the expectation. Again, God's hope here is a figure of speech for his determined resolution that all creation would be filled up with his son. That the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into this glorious freedom of the children of God. So here's insight number two, not just to bless, but to challenge you. Insight two, God here is pictured by an anthropomorphic metaphor as a maker of something who then hopes his creation will fulfill the purpose for which he made it. In this case, the maker is God, and his hope, put that in air quotes, is that the creation itself will be liberated into the glorious freedom of the children of God, which can only occur when all creation partakes in divine life. Human wishful thinking 
Three kinds of hope here then under insight two. Human wishful thinking hopes that maybe such and such will be or such and such will happen. Christian hope is the confident expectation that such and such will be because God who promised is able to make it so and because Jesus Christ is the eternal yes and the emphatic amen to all the promises of God. So therefore, the third hope is God's hope. God's hope is a determined resolution and an unstoppable determination. And so when he makes the creation, it's with the unstoppable determination that it will be the cathedral for his indwelling and that he will be all in all. Verse 22 then, Romans 8. For we know that all of creation in all of its times, that's passe, hecatesis, Greek, laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs even until now. But not only is that so, verse 23, on top of that, we, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we being the proleptic new creation, sometimes called the church or the present Israel of God, Christ corporate, all those apply to us, we sigh, we, with the creation, sigh deeply in ourselves. This explains, in in fact, this is a bracketed comment, this explains the suffering of this present time and our suffering with Christ, which precedes by necessity and is the very means of our entry into glory. As we eagerly await the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship. Notice this phrase, the sons of God, opens up in Romans eight nineteen. Here it is again, verse 23. We eagerly await the, f- the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship. That is, the redemption of our very human bodies. Their ransom from corruption, and this refers to what we're going to be studying in theology, in the light of the glory at the beatific vision. Jesus Christ leads us to the Father, and he leads us to glorification, and he allows us to see the Father as Jesus sees the Father in a beatific vision. That's our goal. That's the light of glory. We're on the way. Verse 24, for it is in this hope, Not our hope. This is God's hope, meaning it is in this unstoppable, fully determined resolution by God, which we find in Ephesians 1.11, to sum up everything in Christ. It is in this hope, which is God's determined resolution to liberate the whole creation by comprising it of Christ. It is in this hope that we were saved. However, hope, that is our hope, that is seen, already realized, well, that's not hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, comment, and the conviction of things not seen. So it says, because who hopes for what one sees? Like the commercial says, who glows? You all will at the glorification. Who hopes for what one sees or has fully realized already? You don't hope for the Maserati 
When the keys are in your hand, you're seated in it, and you just lit up the ignition. You've realized the hope. So who hopes for what one realizes, has already realized? Verse 25, but if we are hoping for what we do not presently see, we eagerly wait for it. That's Christian hope, to be seen and fully experienced. And we do so with perseverance. In the same way, verse 26, that is by the Spirit and not in our own power. The Spirit in whom we wait by faith in Galatians 5.5. The Spirit, again, implying that we perseveringly wait and hope by the Spirit. Not by a stiff upper lip, not by wishful thinking, not by being tough on our part. But as the Spirit causes us to abound in hope, arrow forward, Romans fifteen thirteen. So, backing up, verse 26, in the same way that is by the Spirit, the Spirit keeps coming to help us in our weakness, insofar as we don't even know what to pray for, as we should. But the Spirit pleads in our behalf with groans too deep for words. Verse 27, and the one, God the Father, who sees precisely what goes on in the thoughts and intents of people's innermost being, also knows just what the Spirit of God is thinking and intending, because he always intercedes for the saints as God the Father would have it. God the Father being, bracketed comment, the God of all grace, First Peter 5.10 the God who delights to give us the kingdom, Luke 12, 32. The God who wills the salvation of all human beings and determines it to be realized, especially those who currently believe who already have a foretaste of the age to come. First Timothy 2, 4. First Timothy 4, 10. Hebrews 6, 5. Verse 28. On top of that, Paul keeps stacking stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff. On top of that, we know for sure that for those who love God, now be careful here. Here's the insight. This isn't one of the seven insights. This is just a side insight. Those who love God are those whom God loves because no one loves unless God first loves them. Therefore, those who love God have to be first those whom God loves. God loves everybody, therefore the lovers of God is ultimately all of humankind in all of its times. All of God is working for the ultimate good of all of creation and all of humankind, and he has determined unstoppably to bring it about. That's very good news. You hear gospels today? Not very good news. Not good news. It's like someone says, come to here, we have fresh food. You get to the place, you go, not fresh. Come and hear the good news. You go to the church, you hear something about going to eternal hell if you don't believe. You go, not good news. This is very good news. And I'm not ashamed of it. We're not ashamed of this good news because there's no distortion in it that would cause us to be ashamed. It's pure. Every word of God is pure. That's my pastoral Loud-mouthed comments. But, again, Romans eight twenty eight. On top of that, we know for sure that those who love God, which is all of humanity, the three persons of the triune God together as one being 
is synergizing all things to a divinely benevolent and beneficent intentioned end. That means he intends to bring all to the supreme good, which is a fellowship among human and divine persons into which all creation is invited and partakes. By those whom God loves, then, I mean, Paul says, those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and called into being as a new creation according to his purpose. So insight three pops up here. It's a constellation of insights. The word prothesin here that we have looked at before in our study, this is all boiling down something that began with Better Call Paul. Several years have gone into this message today, quite literally. The word prothesin, P-R-O-T-H, I don't have time to do a lot of Greek today, but prothesin is precisely God's determined and unstoppable resolution. He works everything together for his own purpose. That's prothesin. Again, prothesin is precisely God's determined and unstoppable resolution to sum up everything universally and savingly. And diachronically, that means through all times in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.11, big verse coming up. And in the context of Ephesians 1.9 through 11, and also in connection with Romans 16.25 to 27, it's called the mystery of God. The insight continues. Consequently, those whom God loves, also known as those whom he calls according to his purpose, means ultimately everybody though especially for now, those who believe, those in whom God has evoked faith and awakened faith. No one loves God unless God loves them first. 1 John 4.10, 4.19. But the lovers of God are those who are first loved by God. Therefore, the lovers of God are those whom God first loves. But God loves the world of humankind in all of its times. Therefore, the lovers of God means ultimately the entirety of humanity in all of its times. And why not? All of humanity is summed up in Christ, who is the ultimate lover of God. 829. Because those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, the theme here means as sons of God. So that Jesus would be the firstborn among many siblings. Those many siblings, bracketed comment, would have to be all those whom God justifies by Jesus Christ's one saving righteous act. Romans 5.18, and that happens to be all of humanity. Many sons here equals all of humanity. Many equals all here, as it does in Romans 5.18 and 19, and Hebrews 2.9 to 10. For by the grace of God, he tasted death for all humankind, that he might bring all humankind into sons as in glory. Verse 30, moreover, those whom he predestined, For this conformity, he also called into existence as a new creation. And those he called into existence, not just called, but called into existence as a new creation, he also justified. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You'll notice the tenses are in the aorist constitutive in the Greek, which means that all of this is a done deal from God's perspective. Revelation puts it this way. Look, I'm making everything new. It is done. Revelation 21, 5 and 6. It is done. From God's perspective, it's done. Seeing from God's perspective elevates you up into his perspective and elevates you up into a created participation with his uncreated life and love. That's again, that's where we're going theologically next. So, then he goes on to say in verse 31, where we enter into the divine primity in the very center of the verse in Romans, the center of the heart of Romans 8, 31 and 32. What can we, and this means all of us, including my opponent, whom he f- dukes it out with in Romans 1, 18 to 4, 25. What can we, and that includes Paul's opponent. So he would say, what can we, all of us, including my opponent, opponent say against these things? Nothing is the answer. If God is for us, us, and he most emphatically is per the first class condition of the subordinating conjunction E here for us, he is for us, that is, in all the ways described up to this point from Romans 5.1 onward. He's so for us that he justified the whole human race in Christ. Who can be effectively against us? Now, who does he mean by us here? We'll see in a moment. No one can. Verse 32, since indeed God did not spare his very own eternally begotten son, but freely handed him over, paradidomi, the same thing that the opponent said to Paul, that what he does to people, he hands them over, hands them over, hands them over to do unspeakable evils so that the wrath of God falls on them. That's not Paul. That's not the gospel. That's the opponent. And he is an agent of Satana, Satan, the adversary, who is about to be crushed under the feet of the Roman saints and all of humanity, for that matter, because Satan is ready also to be transformed into the original creation that he was as a light bearer from God, and then some. So, who is going to condemn you then? That's what Romans 8.34 says. So then again, Who could be effectively against us? No one. 32, since God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over. That word is used in Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, 4, 25, 6, 17, and here. For us all. Please notice all. Doesn't just mean you and me, the saints, you and me, and to tell us thy phalanx, you and me, the apostle Paul and the Roman saints. It means all of humanity. He gave him up for us all, gave him over for us all. How will he not, with him who is not only the son, but the heir of all things, freely grant us all things? Who will bring an effective accusation against God's elect? Let me think. God who justifies? Absolutely not. Who is the one who will condemn? Let me think. Christ, the one who died, arrow backward, Romans 6, 7. Even more, who was raised up, arrow backward, Romans 4, 25, for our justification. Who was at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf. Will he? Of course not. 
In the meantime, until the last judgment, as it's called, when we finally experience our justification in the light of glory, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war? As it is written, verse 36, because of our identification and association with you, Lord Jesus, we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But verse 37 answers the question after that parenthesis, answers the question of Romans 8:35: will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war separate us from that love, the answer is an emphatic no. In all these things, we are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. Bracket, that's God who reconciled us to himself while we were still enemies. And that's Christ who died for us while we were ungodly and in a state of intractable sinfulness. And God's love who justified us by Christ's blood and reconciled us while we were enemies, made us alive while we were dead in trespasses and sins. So, no, no one's going to separate us from the love of God. Verse 38, Paul demonstrates his own absolute confidence, for I have been persuaded. The passive voice indicates that Paul's absolute confidence has been evoked in him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Arrow forward, Romans 14, 14. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in the present, nor things about to be, nor powers above, nor powers below, nor any governmental institution like the Roman Empire and its agents will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For this love, as we've learned, will transform the evils just listed into the supreme good. Insight four. This sounds like the McLaughlin group. Issue one. What do you say, Martin? Wrong! Well, and this is insight four. You want to argue against it? Wrong! Well, you, don't, you probably never saw the McLaughlin group. It's, what's even better than that is Dana Carvey imitating. You can look that up on Google. It's hilarious. You'll, you'll fall out. Insight four, the sons of God theme introduced in Romans 8, 19, where we kind of started to fall off Wednesday, providentially, continues in Romans 9. There isn't just a bracket. Romans 9 through 11 is not just a bracket or a parenthesis, and you can do without it. It's part of the continuity of Paul's whole argument, and that's extremely important. Insight four, the sons of God theme, Romans 8, 19, continues in Romans 9 showing one of the many ways in which there's a smooth continuity from Romans 8 to Romans 9 and following. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul wrestles with the identity of Israel, and then he presents and then solves the problem of the hardening of a part of ethnic Israel in history now. He declares that all Israel will be saved at the end of this argument, in the context and within the horizon of the salvation of all the nations, of all of humanity in all of its times, and all of creation in all of its times. Romans 9.1 then, Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is my co-witness with me in the Holy Spirit. 
That's when somebody's talking seriously. When I say that I have such great sorrow and unrelenting grief in my heart, this sorrow was at one time so great that I was on the point of praying, this is an idiomatic imperfect, to be cursed and banned from Christ if such a thing were possible, and it's not. On behalf of my siblings, my countrymen, according to physical descent, who are Israelites, and he says in Romans, arrow forward, Romans 11.1, 1, I am an Israelite, which is proof that God will save them all, if he can save Paul. To whom belong the adoption? There is the principle of sonship, fully realized in the light of glory at the beatific vision, only realized now by faith and by hope. To whom belong, that's Israel, to whom belong the adoption and the Shekinah glory, that's the presence of God's glorious presence in their midst, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the priestly service, and the promises, whose are the patriarchs, and from whom, according to physical descent, is the Messiah, who is over all, God, who is blessed forever. All these belong to Israel, as we call them after the flesh. Verse 6 this is a recollection of and carrying on of an argument that began in Romans 3.3 3 now, arrow backward. I even show these arrows throughout our translation. Romans 3.3, 3. with a recollection of Romans 3.3, 3, he says there, what if some are not faithful? This is asking the question and begging the question, what happens if human beings don't believe? Does that nullify their salvation? The answer is, of course not. You say, I disagree. Well, you're wrong! Now, so, with a recollection of Romans 3.3, 3, what if some were faithful? Look at what it says in verse 6. But their present condition, that means their obvious condition of disobedience and unbelief and enmity against the gospel. Arrow forward, Romans 11.28 to 32. This does not mean that the word of God has failed. Now, here's the insight that fits right here. Didn't see that until this morning. Insight five, the word of God, capital W, was spoken into the world through incarnation. That's the eternal logos, Jesus Christ, the son, so that the world would be saved through him. John 1, 14, 3, 17. God sent his son into the world, not to judge or condemn the world, but that, so that through him the world would be saved. So has that failed? Has the world being saved, in other words, God's plan to save the world, has that word failed because Israel doesn't believe right now and that Israel is hardened right now, a great part of them, not all of them, and only temporarily? Of course it doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. If you say that it has, you're wrong! Now, just waking up a few, uh, Sunday morning. That means Sunday morning comes after Saturday night. Live from New Kensington, it's Sunday morning. Now, wake up. That's Ephesians 5.14, incidentally. Wake up. The word of God was spoken into the world via incarnation so that the world would be saved through him. That word has not failed. No matter who's not believing, no matter how many world religions there are in opposition to it, it doesn't matter. 
The word of God has not and will not fail, nor will he fail to lead the entirety of the human race, including all of ethnic Israel, into the light of glory and the beatific vision, including all of Islam, including all of the Buddhist world and the Hindu world and the atheistic world and the militant atheists. He'll bring them all to the beatific vision and the light of glory as sons of God. That's very good news. So, continuing in verse 6, that was an insight stuck between. For not all who are hereditarily descended from Israel are presently authentically Israel, in God's view. Neither are all the descendants of Abraham by physical heritage his children, that is, They are not his children by the mere fact of genetical descent. On the contrary, quote of Genesis 21, 12, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Isaac being the type of Christ. That is, verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh, that is by physical descent, who are God's children, but the children of the promise, the promise to Abraham That in your seed, Christ, all the nations, every human being ever, will be blessed. They are considered the seed. For this word, again the word word here, the logos. For this word, hologos, also used in Romans 9, 27 and 28, which quotes Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. For this word is one of promise, bracket, And in Jesus Christ, the eternal word, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. He says, then continuing verse 9, at this time next year, I will come, says Yahweh, and Sarah will have a son. That's Genesis 18.10 and 18.14 in the Septuagint conflated into one word. Verse 10, not only that, but even more to the point, he says, Paul says, When Rebekah conceived two children by one act of intercourse with Isaac, our forefather, and then there's a parenthesis, for before the children were even born, listen to this one, before the children were even born, that rules out hereditary descent, say nothing of doing anything good or bad, that does away with all good works, including human believing, The same two words here are used, agathos and phalos, used in 2 Corinthians 5.10, incidentally. In order that God's elective purpose would continue in effect, not from works, verse 12, but of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, Genesis 25.23b. Verse 13, as it stands written, I have loved, and that means I have chosen to be the line of Messiah. I have loved, that is, elected Jacob as the one through whom the Christ would come. And Esau I have hated, and that's not personal animus toward Esau, of course. When Jacob saw him, he saw the face of God in Genesis 32. So he's saying here what he means by I have hated means I've rejected Esau as the one through whom Messiah would come, Malachi 1, 2 to 3. What shall we say then? What are we going to say to this then, Paul says? 
He's challenging his opponent again right here, by the way. There is no injustice with God, is there? Of course not. Meganoito, verse 15. For he says to Moses, Yahweh says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. Here's the biggest arrow forward. He will have mercy on all. 11.32. That's where he's headed. 11.30. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. You, you got a problem with that? Do you have a problem with that? Preacher, gospel preacher, evangelist, monsignor, bishop, pope. You got a problem with that? Then you're wrong. <laughs> wow. I just called a lot of people wrong. <laughs> So then, God will show mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy to. But he goes further. I will show mercy to all. He sums up everybody under unbelief to make belief not the source of salvation. So that he may have mercy upon all. So God could say this to you if you put the arrow forward to 1132, which we're not going to do today. But he says, in order to show mercy to all. So God says, I will show mercy to all. Because I want to show mercy to all. You got a problem with that? I'll guarantee you there's at least 5,000 preachers speaking in this same time slot across this world today who have a problem with that. I just happen to be a preacher that doesn't have a problem with that. You see, I don't, here's the person. I don't want him to have mercy on all because that means he's going to save that son of a bitch. That's the problem right there. So let's roll this up because we're going to go right into the communion service. (laughs) Okay. I just rolled up a few objectors right there. Notice I didn't point to the audience. I just was over, you know, So then, it, that's election, God's choice, doesn't depend on any human who wills, nor on any human who runs, but on God who shows mercy. We could add to that, or on any human who believes, but on God who shows mercy. So the scripture, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I brought you into being, literally, I brought you into existence for this very reason to showcase my power by using you. And so that my name will be proclaimed all over the world in all the earth. So then verse 18, as God said to Moses, he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. According to Romans eleven thirty two. he shows mercy to all and he hardens whom he will. That means he temporarily hardened Pharaoh as he temporarily hardened Israel. If he hadn't temporarily hardened Israel, they would have not voted for the crucifixion of the Son of God, which is their salvation and the salvation of all of humanity. And so he hardens whom he will. That means on the way to showing mercy to all. Insight six. This is far from the doctrine of double predestination which teaches that God has predestined some of the human race on whom he decided to show mercy, 
to eternal salvation. And some of the human race, presumably if you ask Augustine, a vast majority, on whom he decides not to have mercy, to eternal perdition in hell. Paul, the herald of, the, of King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, advocates for, and may I say, I do too, universal mercy of God in which God has elected the whole of the human race and predestined all to be made alive in Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and to be conformed into his image in Romans 8, 29, arrow backward. Paul's gospel is the gospel of God, Romans 1, 1, and 2, which is all about his son who in the end and as the end tell us, Revelation twenty two thirteen and Romans ten four tell us submits himself and in him all of the redeemed creation to God the Father, so that the result is the triune God being all in all. First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight compared with Romans eleven thirty six. This means that all of creation and all of humanity and all of its times are predestined to participate in a fellowship of unrestricted mutual love between divine and human persons. Paul's gospel is very good news. It's the echo of God's gospel, which proclaims the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, his son, not a message of condemnation to the larger percentage of humankind, nor a message of the destruction of his creation. So in closing, Romans 9.19, here's where the opponent comes up. Paul challenges him again. You think he was done with him by 4.25. He pretty much was. But apparently he raises his head up a little more so that Paul has to give him a front kick to the face. You, the opponent, may say to me now, then why does he still find fault? Quoting Hebrews 8, 8, for example, which goes back to Jeremiah. For who can resist his will? Paul. Here's Paul's reply. On the contrary, who are you, O mere man, to answer back to God? Now, this is something the potter's shed never does. Will the thing that is molded say to the potter? Will the potter's shed crew say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Now, see, that's, I got you guys. Now, will the thing that is molded, the clay pot, say to the one who molded it, the potter, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have no right to make from one mass of clay a piece of pottery for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, for a while he can harden Israel, harden up the clay pot in order to bring in the Gentiles. So then he can put the clay pot back on the potter's wheel and make Israel all over again so he can save all Israel in the context of the salvation of all the nations, which is saving all the nations in the context of all humanity, which is saving all humanity in the context of all creation. Now, you've got anything against that? Then you're wrong, wrong. Now, I can't hear you. What is it? You're what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, I feel like a Baptist up here. So, <laughs> Pastor Brown, something rubbed off after you prayed up here. Something, you know. um, hypothetical, verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience? Read Second Peter 3.15, you'll find out the patience of the Lord is salvation, as Paul teaches in all his epistles. What if he wanted to put up with much patience vessels of wrath that were made to throw away? 
that is, vessels for mere temporary use. And in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, which is all of humankind, including us whom he has called into existence as a new creation, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call not my people, hardened Israel, my people, remade Israel, and not loved, I'll call them beloved, because we're accepted in the beloved Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1.6, related to Hosea 2.23, Septuagint 2.25. And in the very place, listen carefully, biggest insight of all in one sense, in the very place Jesus crucified, where they were told, you are not my people. Jesus crucified is God saying, you are not my people. In the same place there, Jesus raised from the dead, they will be called the sons of the living God. Right there, same place. In the crucifixion, not my people. In the resurrection, you are my people. You are not only my people, but you, the whole human race in Christ made alive in him, are the very sons of the living God. Now that's right. That's true. Closing insight, then we're going to, the ushers will take you away. If you come back, we'll have communion. (laughs) That's like the wife who said, I'm reversing this now. I take my husband everywhere. Problem is, he keeps coming back. No, never mind. Insight seven. That's usually the other way around, but we live in a new era now. (laughs) Insight seven. Quote, Paul speaks here of a transformation of Israel who are currently hardened against the gospel. That's a current trend, not an eternal reality. He is on the way to proclaiming the salvation of all of Israel through the saving significance of Jesus Christ and the saving impact of the Christ event, which we are remembering today with great fondness. Remember my death until I come. Sons of God, then, is a term related to adoption. Adopted sons in Roman law could not be put away. You could put away your own son, disown him, but you couldn't disown an adopted son. So adoption is one of the irrevocable privileges of Israel, which God universalizes to take in and embrace all of humanity in all of its times through Jesus Christ. Adoption, then. Adoption is the created participation of humanity in toto with the Son of God. The Son of God, also known as the Lamb of God, leads all humanity, all his people, all of humanity in all of its times, into the light of glory and the beatific vision as he himself sees God. We'll see him as he is in his essence. The divine Son of God who entered into a second existence as a human being and partook of human life through incarnation brings sinful humanity into a second existence in which they partake of the divine life. I say Jesus brings sinful humanity into the second existence as the sons of God because he who became the likeness of sinful humanity became sin so that we, sinful humanity, would be made the righteousness of God in him. When the sons of God are brought to the light of glory, they will see God in the beatific vision and become like him. 
they, that is we, will possess him as he is in himself. And he will possess us, they, or us, we will possess him as he is in himself, and we will be possessed by God as we are in our truly human being as exemplified in the man Christ Jesus. They, that is we, all humanity, will say to him, you are my God, and he will say to us, you are my people. With that mindset, you partake of this Eucharist today with thanksgiving. In closing, therefore, and as soon as I'm done, ushers, please take all the congregation to the elements or bring them to the person that's unable to go up for themselves, and then we'll have a short communion. Look how great, then, the scripture says in verse 1 of John, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Look how great a love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason that the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears... We will be like him because we will see him as he is. That means we will possess him as he is in himself. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we examine ourselves and we see ourselves reappropriate for yourselves the moment in which you realize that you were the object of this unconditional love and that you received this gift of love. And with this reappropriation of the love of God in Christ Jesus, let's partake of the communion. Passage is Matthew twenty six twenty six. We will only wait until I finish these verses, as if you haven't been hit with enough of them yet. But after we finish these verses, we will then partake of both the bread and the fruit of the vine together they are together in one person matthew 26 26 on the occasion of the passover jesus instituted that which we're doing today and as they were eating that is the passover meal jesus took bread blessed and broke it gave it to the disciples and said take and eat it this is my body from that these verses hebrews 10 5 and following. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, Jesus says, See, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written about me to do your will, O God. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come into the world to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have all been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In John 6:51 Jesus said, "I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then in Matthew 26, 27, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins, we know many equals all. Peter echoes these words. He was there and he said, for you know that you were not redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your father's not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of time for you, who who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7b, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast, but with the yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we were also made his inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And you were once alienated and hostile because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy, faultless, and without blame before him. For all sin, says Romans, and are all under the power of sin and complicit with it, and fall hopelessly short of the glory of God, and all are unconditionally justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood, his sacrificial death. So we now recall and reappropriate this moment when we were unconditionally loved in the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, who became sin that we would be made the very righteousness of God in him. For God has made Jesus to be our justification and our sanctification and complete redemption including the redemption of our bodies, which all creation waits for. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Let's celebrate Jesus, the heart of divine promeity, in a state of mind in which we find ourselves gifted by God's own love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love God and one another and the other because he first loved us. In this state of mind, then, let us eat the bread. And in this state of mind and spirit, with great affection, we remember our Lord. Let us drink the cup. What they did after this was sing a hymn. We've kept that tradition here. And customarily, we sing a hymn too. That means we'll just, Vicki will lead us. You can get up and head out. Please dispose of your cups on the way out. When you hit the hall, that's called Fellowship. Hall. Okay, thank you very kindly. Go in peace.